Hey, everybody. We got a great show for you today. Uh, first, we're going to talk about Shopify's proposed 10 to 1 stock split and why the board wants to increase CEO and founder Toby Lucky's control from 34% to 40%. And should these companies, public ones, even have this kind of founder control? Yeah, what is even private versus public anymore? And then we have an unexpected guest because we are obsessed with this topic. We're joined by Derek Thompson from The Atlantic. And we had him on to discuss his article in The Atlantic, Why American Teens Are So Sad. Yeah, it is uh, four forces, evidently, that are propelling the rising rates of depression among young people, including, as you might imagine, social media, but not exclusively social media. Yeah, it's a really deep, deep discussion, an important discussion, uh, a rambling discussion, but one you're not going to want to miss. It's going to be a great show. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Rocket. To hire in today's competitive market, you need outstanding recruiting. Rocket's expert recruiters paired with ML candidate matching set them apart from the rest. Get 20% off your first placement at getrocket.com slash twist. Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at vanta.com slash twist. And Dell for Startups. Visit dell.com slash twist to apply for Dell for Startups and save up to 45% off on select items. All right, in our first news story today, looks like we have more stock splits and governance to talk about, Molly. Shopify has some plans. Shopify has some plans to uh, not have a Dow style takeover, apparently. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I mean, I don't think that's exactly what's happening here. But since we have been having this ongoing conversation about founder yep. control and what can happen when someone comes in with a disruptive stock buy, yep. uh, Shopify, just probably coincidentally, is currently planning, evidently, a 10 to 1 stock split Mm -hmm. That would also increase CEO and founder Toby Lucky's control from 34 to 40%. Now, mm -hmm. uh, Shopify, of course, provides e-commerce software that helps people start online businesses. IPO'd in 2015 at a $1.2 billion valuation. Has had a tough uh, post-COVID drop. Pre-COVID, it was trading at $60 billion, roughly. Market cap, they peaked at $212 billion Whoa. in November 2021. And since then, uh, Shopify has been down 64% off its COVID peak. So no, wait, about where is, is it trading above its previous pre-COVID peak? Is that? Yes. So it's still trading above. So it's still a trading good, a little bit a above. Solid $18 and had, billion dollars above. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what we're coming to is like what we saw during COVID of these stocks going up was directly related to market participation and by maybe new entrants. And people just buying their favorite names independent of price earnings ratios. Mm -hmm. And now it's kind of like if you draw the line, we'll just take out the the peak that maybe was artificial. But if you were to draw the line from 2019, 2020, listen, I'm not into like stock chartology nonsense. I don't necessarily believe in that. <laughs> but it, it, like it probably would Libra. be a similar line, right? Like we'd have like, yep. this through line that was like, yeah, that was weird. A uh, bunch of people bought the stock, meme stocked it, whatever, because it was kind of a meme stock, right? Everybody's going to stay home. Everybody's going to shop. We're never going to leave our homes again. I, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure that's a meme thing so much as it is a 
oh crap, everything about commerce has changed thing. Sure. And, and okay. Shopify actually, I think the thing that Shopify did during the pandemic that was really promising and smart was to just basically create mechanisms for for stores to just pop up e-commerce shops like overnight, make it super, super, super easy to onboard previously brick and mortar shops that needed to go online in a hurry. Um, right. And so I think they got a lot of attention there. However, uh, okay, wait, wait. So to say that, mm -hmm. just to build on that, you're a co you're a store in the real world. COVID happens, people can't leave their homes. You need to put set up an e-commerce shop to sell what's in the store. Yeah, and you're starting to do deliveries through whatever Lyft and Uber and Postmates. So yeah, that could have been part of the trend. But they also during this time had spectacular growth. Yes, so legitimately, th th there was yeah. legitimate spectacular world class growth here. Yeah, and so as a result. Shopify is saying effectively, and it sounds like the board is saying, hey, you know who's awesome? Toby Lutke. You know who sure is, yeah. should have essentially unchallenged control over this company forever? Mm. Toby Lutke. So they're doing this 10 to 1 stock, stock split, split um, lowering the share price to make it easier to add stock compensation potentially to employee pay packages. That's one thing that the Wall Street Journal speculated on. Um, also increased liquid liquidity. But... Wait, so hold on a second. Let's let me ask a question about yeah, that. Yeah. So what is the what what's the stock trading at? What's the number today? Not the market cap, but the actual number. So it's going to go from see. what a share to what a share. If it's trading at you know sixty dollars, it's going down to six or something. Okay, so trading at six oh five while we're taping this. So it goes to sixty dollars and mm -hmm. fifty cents. This is because most modern brokerages let you buy a fraction of the share. This is like a psychological thing. And then even with employees, it's, it would also be a psychological thing. Cause if I gave you a 10th of a $605 stock, or I gave you, you know, if I made the stock worth a 10th as much and gave you one of them, it'd be the same thing. It's the yeah, same amount although, of money and value. So this is largely a psychological phenomenon, right? Is when it? They do I mean, splits? I don't know if I don't. No, I genuinely don't know if companies issue fractional shares as stock as compensation. Well, no, no, the oh, for compensation, yes, for yeah. compensation. We, we know Robinhood and E Trade let you buy fractional shares. Right. So then, the question is, are, which I think are is still somewhat uncomfortable. Like, if I wanted to, if I hadn't really thought that much about it's psychological mm. in the sense that it'll work. If I hadn't thought mm. that much about buying Shopify at six hundred five, I might still be like sixty. Hell yeah, I'm loading up on. <laughs> right? So it's in like that case, if it is at the stock store, and so I think the psychological uh, part gets people to buy, and then you have liquidity as a result. I just always found it weird. I, it might be more interesting then to go a hundred to one. Why don't we go all the way and make it a six dollar share again? And then everybody's like, "Oh, it's only six dollars a share. It's on sale." <laughs> Even though it's not true, it's a hundred times as many shares. But oh, okay. absolutely, isn't it all? I mean, isn't the whole stock market just ultimately like it's all like mostly feelings? Well, the feelings of, do drive a lot of it, right? Yeah. But hopefully this underlying, I mean, the revenue Employees, on the company is real. Right, exactly. Just so people know, the GMV in 2021 was $175 billion. That's the gross merchandise volume. So everything sold from the store is worth $175. But the revenue for Shopify, they get a percentage of sales and they get software fees was $4.6 billion. So about just, uh, you know, just over 2% of that, uh, or 2.7% uh, to be precise. Their net income was 2.9 billion in that same period. So they're at price earnings is 27 times. That's a pretty high price earnings, but mm -hmm. it's a high growth company. So anyway, just to put some numbers on the board. It's a real business. It's a real business. Um, employees do not, thank you, producers, get partial shares and compensation packages. So presumably ah. they could then get issued a much bigger basket of shares. 
maybe have increased liquidity themselves. I don't really know. Okay, that makes sense then. But I think what's super interesting about this is that Shopify's board is also proposing a founder share that would increase CEO Toby Lukey's voting power from 34% to 40%. Mm-hmm. One analyst interviewed by the Wall Street Journal said his increased control would allow him to block any attempts at a hostile takeover. And Robert Ash, the independently director of Shopify's board, said, quote, the company is looking to get the influence of our future in Toby's hands. Hmm. So a whole new is this a whole new type of share, a new founder share? They say that combined um, with his existing super voting class B shares will increase his voting power. I guess, you know, the mechanics of this are not exactly clear, but yeah. the the concept in the, you know, this might just be ways of just saying super voting shares. That doesn't seem as scary. So founder share sounds like optically, oh, it's founder shares. Oh, but they're well, super, the super deserve. voting. They're super, they're super <laughs> shares. Basically, it's my share. Super is, voting. We super have the same squared. number of shares. Mine are just more valuable than yours. Right, so. totally. <laughs> I, this has nothing to do with the Twitter stuff because this would, this has to have been in you know, these kind of things take a long time to, you know, architect like a year. Um, so this is probably something that's been in the works for a year or two. Well, it may um, not have anything to do with the the today's Twitter stuff, but it could yeah. have to do with the last Twitter stuff, right? When you had activist investors who were really putting a lot of pressure oh, on sure. Jack Dorsey yeah. to make changes. Like, you know, I think you are seeing some moves to for for publicly traded companies to have a little bit more Mark Zuckerberg style control. Yeah. And from the article, John Phillips, one of Shopify's first investors and a mentor to Mr. Luque, will be converting his Class B shares to Class A, which will boost Mr. Luque's voting power to 40%. Ah, so wait, wait, John Phillips is converting his shares, which I guess he's pledged to Toby to vote, Mm. if I'm reading that correctly. I I read it as he's decreasing the total amount of shares in the Class B stock, which will increase Toby's percentage to 40%. Hmm. So anyway... Long story short here, uh, mechanics aside, um, founders want to control their companies and not deal with, uh, they want the benefits of being public, uh, but they want the power of being a private controlled company. And we have this now zone between public companies that operate with, you know, a, a traditional voting structure that are susceptible to management being voted out for performance or for how they're running the company and then privates and then in between now you have this public private hybrid where if you don't like the governance i guess you can opt out and not buy the stock would be one way to look at it another way to look at it is should we allow these companies to be public uh and get the benefit of the public buying in pensions buying in people's retirement buying in and then giving a a disproportionate amount of power to the person in charge. This is analogous to a sports team letting LeBron James pick the coach and the players. Like what mm-hmm. could go wrong? You know? Yeah. And we yeah. just saw that it's this season, analogy. what went wrong. Um, right. And then other times you could see what could go right. You know, Michael Jordan's like, I want Rodman. I, you know, we're going to deal with him. And sorry if you don't like it, but he's he's joining the team because I want somebody to get rebounds. And I don't want to mm-hmm. have to rebound and get beat up and under the basket. The end. So live by the gun, die by the gun, live by the sword, die by the sword. I don't know exactly how I feel about it. I don't know either. It feels contrary in some ways to, you know, just like you said, to the idea of a public market and the idea of of a board and governance. And we have seen already, you know, lack of accountability across industries. I mean, 
I don't know why the Activision CEO still had a job, but I also don't know why like United CEO, you know, sort of like, yeah, you see over and over all of these scenarios in which there, there is not. If the founders have board control, here's an idea. If they truly do have board control, then they shouldn't have to have a board. We should just call it what it is. Instead of putting this like ridiculous farce that like Facebook has a board. If Zuckerberg truly can just do whatever he wants. Right. Why put the window dressing of a board there? Why? you know, pull the wool over everybody's eyes and slip them the mickey and, and bamboozle them. Just call it what it is. You're buying the God King's company, buying the God Queen's company. That's it. Mm-hmm. You, you, you have given all power to them and they answer to no one. And your only mm-hmm. option is to sell the stock. So they can lose your faith and you could sell the stock, but you cannot have a reasonable board discussion that results in them listening to what you're saying. Because they don't have I to. feel like that would be more honest. It would be more and honest, then, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, it would be more honest to both investors and consumers. Like, look, right. the only accountability that there's ever going to be, because I think, you know, consumers like look at, people look at Facebook and the things that it does in the world and they think there's no, you know, they have no recourse. And the, the recourse is like, one, get it out of your portfolio and two, don't use it. Hmm. Like have a super honest conversation. There is not some secret governing body that's going to come in and like fix this. Yeah. It's only you. Yeah, you're on your own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's an interesting rub here. I think you know what will determine this is what institutional holders uh, believe is the right thing to do. Yeah, uh, I have seen this go both ways, up close and personal. Um, you know, there are some people who are so supremely talented that just letting them have the reins and keeping them less distracted and not having to worry about a hostile takeover, not having to worry about activist investors, means the company goes up and to the right. And it's, you know, there's nothing that says a company has to be a democracy with one vote for one person. Yeah, we can make all kinds of variations of corporate structures, and the market will decide which one it wants to invest in. And if too many of these, you know, hyper control companies don't perform and their stocks don't perform, people will not buy it. If the New York, the New York Times, I Google to a lesser extent, Facebook to the pinnacle extent, and now Toby, if these companies perform, then perhaps it is the better model. The results would say it is the better model. And if they go off the rails and the stocks go sideways, then it's not the better model. And you only have one person to blame. Hiring well is one of the most important things a startup can do to increase their chances of having outlier success. So if your current hiring strategies aren't working well, Rocket can help you. Rocket is trusted by companies like Tinder, NerdWallet, and Carta because it was started by former tech founders who understand how to hire at scale. Rocket was built by founders for founders, and they use machine learning to supercharge their team of 60 recruiters to help you close hires quickly and at a high quality level. They'll help you hire from freelance to executives, and this is a white glove service, folks. They're gonna save you time, they're gonna help you meet better candidates, and they're gonna lower the number of hiring mistakes. Rocket is currently helping a well-funded early stage API company called Rudder, R-U-T-T-E-R, and they're helping them hire across engineering, product, marketing, and sales, and it's going great. Rudder's founder had this to say, couldn't recommend a better early stage recruiting partner to work with. Here's your call to action. Get rocket.com slash twist and use the promo code twist for 20% off your first placement. Zero dollars required up front, so there's no risk. That's getrocket.com slash twist. And remember to use the promo code twist to save 20% off. I guess what I don't understand is like, what is Shopify worried about? Like they're doing fine right? They're putting up great numbers. 
what what is the concern? Why not just pay Toby more? Like, I don't really understand why you then also have to create a new special super, super voting class of shares to make sure that everything's okay and nobody's going to come in and take them over. Never, yeah, I, I would say it's things are going well. So pressure advantage. So if mm-hmm. you're at the poker tournament, you're building up a big chip stack and somebody raises preflop, you got so many chips, they're short stack. You've got a, you know, whatever, 40% chance of winning hand, they have a 60. You, you know, you might try to pressure them to fold. Yeah. Get two ways to win, you know? So it's like, I think he's just kind of pressing his advantage. Everybody knows he's, you know, world-class CEO. Everybody knows it's a world-class company. So why not push the envelope here and see if you can consolidate power when things are good? You're not going to be yeah. able to consolidate power if the stock's going down more or if it's the, the company's not growing. So maybe people aren't paying attention. It's a, you know, and they like Toby. And so it's a good time for him to consolidate more power. Yeah. Why not try? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I might do the same thing in his position, you know, okay, I'm going to make this my life's work. I want to consolidate more power. Yeah. But yeah, it's somebody, interesting. Yeah. I mean, you, you could have activist investors come in and tell them like, stop doing, you know, cut costs. You know, if you looked right. at Google, right. if if Google mm-hmm. was subject to activist investors who only cared about profits and dividends. I, uh, I heard some statistic like Google could run with like 10% of the employees it has and none of the systems would go down the company would be the exact same. So oh, you yeah. could literally cut some very large percentage. If, if what's in so fact, interesting is that in know, theory, that's are, all investors ever care about. Like in theory, what what's so fascinating about this is that it gives, I, I doubt that the, the play here is that Shopify is going to be like, hey, we're going to, I mean, even though that was Amazon's play for years and years and decades, right? To sort of say like, yeah, we're going to lose money. We're not here to maximize your shareholder value right away. We're here to yeah, slowly grow mm-hmm. and build a long-term business. And most investors don't care for that. Um but it is sort of an interesting idea that one of the reasons you might want to consolidate control as a founder is so that you could have more flexibility to be like, yep, we're going to lose money for a while because we want to, I don't know, make a more climate friendly operation and that takes investment or we want to pay our, you know, like Costco's <laughs> Costco's stock is always like going down because investors don't want them to pay their employees so much. Yeah. Um, go figure. <laughs> yeah. Go figure. Like, we gave everybody a raise. They're happier. It's like, I'm selling the stock. I'm selling <laughs> the stock. It's a terrible yes. investment. Terrible investment in your people, like who, you know, are the front line. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, and and then there's some investors who are like, listen, if if Amazon had not made the other bet of AWS, it would not be the company it is. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that throws off the money. 100% true. You know, uh, we might look back and say, you know, Google doing autonomous cars, if that actually works and becomes a giant business for them, it might be like, okay, that was it. They did 20 other bets and none of them went anywhere. Google Fiber, nothing worked. Loon, all these projects. Google Glass, nothing worked. But you only need one to work. And if mm-hmm. one works, like AWS, well, gee willikers, you know, you're sitting on yeah. a powder keg. Gee willikers. Gee willikers. Gosh. <laughs> Gosh, gee willikers. You Gosh, nailed it, gee buddy. Gee willikers, pal. Let's go fishing. Hey, fella. <laughs> you gotta, there's an AWS somewhere in there. Somebody's dad is in here right now. Yeah, I just am going grandpa, actually. Uh, So anyway, um, Uh, if you look at it, here's the thought experiment. What could Google's yearly net profit be if they cut all unnecessary staff and other bets? Let's say 60% of all employees, 257 Mm -hmm. billion in revenue 2021, 76 billion in net income. Maybe who knows what Google spends on all those employees. There must be a line item somewhere. But, you know, could they increase their net income by 25 billion? 
a third? I mean, what would that do to the stock? Because then you, you start looking at the price earnings ratio. If the earnings spike, well, then the price earnings ratio goes way down, which mm -hmm. means the stock can go up. So if Google was trying to make the stock price go up, they would do to a certain extent what Apple does, which is buy back shares, mm -hmm. increase the price of their products and don't do any other bets. Like yep. Apple is famous for being like, yeah, we're not going to buy anything. We're not going to build anything new. Like we'll do one new thing every decade. I mean, if you take away like, you know, like washcloths for your phone and no, it's a, you know, yeah, adapters or like, you know, watch, you know, iPad, watch, AirPods, <laughs> maybe phone, goggles. Phone, phone, the phone that ate the entire business. The phone is the entire I don't know business. how many DeepMind employees there are, but I remember reading something like the average DeepMind salary is like 500K. It's something insane. Oh, no, DeepMind wow. salaries. I mean, AI engineers are, you know, uh, closer to seven figures uh, at the peak when this battle was going on because the downstream impacts of a world-class AI engineer are enormous and there are so few of them and if you get them the other person doesn't get them so just think about this if you were to tweak facebook's algorithm and facebook makes you know or, or here you know we're looking at 257 billion in revenue if you tweak the algorithm and made it one percent more efficient for advertisers it's uh you know, 2.5 billion dollars if you were to do 10 basis points you know a tenth of one percent it's two it's two red fins 250 billion yeah i mean it's mm -hmm. It, the, that's the thing about these networks that that's why you're like how do they have 8000 engineers working on this project and it's like look at how big the number is if mm -hmm. one little tweak you know gets some you know 1% more people to click that's why they study the position the font size the color you know and then a million other variables and that's what AI and machine learning does you don't you set it up you don't even know what it's doing it might be on rainy days that a different font color you know, because the average person's computer, you know, because of the sunshine needs a different color, makes you click on the ads 1% more. And then in, when it's a hazy day, like that's literally what could be going on in the algorithm. And we don't even know. Yeah, because a lot of these algorithms are set up. And they're pulling in every piece of data, they might know your screen brightness, <laughs> you know, and oh, on sure. your phone and be able I'm to sure do. your experience, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. They certainly know the weather in your neighborhood, maybe on rainy days people click on more ads. So on those days, you should show five ads per search. And on non rainy days, if it's not raining in your neighbor, show two. I mean, I'm making an absurd, uh, you know, example here, but you know, but maybe not. Exactly. But, but and, maybe it is, not. and like you said, it's a matter of volume. It's sort of like how I mean, the simple analogy is like spam. Yeah. You know, you get you send out 100 million spam messages, and you only need 1% to click or less 0.001% to, to make it worth your while, because it's like a fairly inexpensive thing to do. And so at Google scale, like, yeah, listen, if you're running a restaurant, can... Molly, and you put a hamburger on the menu, people come to the restaurant, they're tired, they had a long day. They're gonna expect, you know, I just have a burger. It's easy choice. I know I love a burger. It's no downside is bad burgers are good is decent. So you do that. And um, now you got all the 20 to $35 entrees, including the steak, are now subservient to the $14 hamburger. And then, you know, you just killed your margin because half those steak people probably would have ordered the New York strip. And so you got to think things through sometimes. Mm -hmm. If you have a, you know, restaurant at scale, that's why my dad didn't want to have a hamburger. On the menu. Fascinating. Yeah, you put a Caesar salad on the menu and a hamburger and mozzarella sticks. Like all of a sudden, you watch it. the tickets. It's gonna be eighty percent of the tickets in the eighties are gonna be. I'll take a Caesar salad and a burger, and let's get a side order of what's else sticks. 
You know, like nobody's going to eat the other. Nobody's going to have the steak tata. Side note, I really like how you call it mozzarella sticks. Mozzarella sticks. What, what did I say? You basically Mo- said that. You basically said mozzarella sticks. Yeah. Like it was a whole Brooklyn Forget situation no, that happened so right speaking there. Of, speaking of Brooklyn. Lovely. Uh, Lovely. Speaking of Brooklyn, hearts and minds to um, thinking about Sunset Park. There was a shooting this morning at the 36th Street Station. Yeah. Which gave me a little bit of a uh, uh, cold uh, feeling in my body because I used to take the R train, get off at 36th from 77th. And uh, yeah, then I would transfer to the N or back in the day, mm. it was the B. Uh, so you would take the R or the N, which, uh, you know, Molly stands for the rarely or the never. That's I how far out of Brooklyn I lived. We could take the rarely or the never. Wow. Um, and then you take the B, to, which was the better trade. Listen, when you're a founder, it's fun to trade your craziest stories with other founders. Recently, Balloon CEO Amanda Greenberg, one of my portfolio companies, told me how Vanta's SOC 2 solution helped her save an important deal in the final hours. Yes, Balloon sells SaaS products and collaborative software. And when they needed 10 documents in place within 48 hours to close a deal, well, Vanta saved the day by supplying customizable templates for Amanda to fill out and helping them through the process all the way to close. So if you don't have your sock too tight, you can't close major customers like this. Vanta's compliance software makes it easier to get and renew your sock too. They continually test against technical and non-technical sock two requirements. They partner with over two dozen audit firms who have been trained to file sock two reports directly within Vanta and on average, Vanta customers are sock two compliant in just two to four weeks. Compare that to three to five months without Vanta. And guess what? Vanta's going to give you $1,000 off right now for your SOC 2 because you listen to This Week in Startups. Get that $1,000 off right now. Vanta.com slash twist. V-A-N-T-A dot com slash twist. Once again, Vanta.com slash twist for $1,000 off. Uh, we've got a guest today. I was uh, reading stories. I was reading tweet storms. And uh, I saw one of these uh, rare moments in uh, the, the late stage media of self-reflection. And we're part of the late stage media, of course. And uh, I've always liked Derek Thompson. He's like a very considered guy. Like he he's also has good prose. You know, that's kind of a lost thing, Molly. A lot of these not folks the, who not are- Not at the Atlantic, but yes. Not at the Atlantic, but, <laughs> you know, I like to have, uh, I just like when somebody puts a little bit of effort into the prose as opposed to like just, you know, the, the, the content mills that a lot of these uh, journalist outlets have been. And I understand people have like, they got to file every day or every two days. They don't have time to even think about it. But Derek's a good writer, and he had some, like, reflective thoughts. Welcome to the program, Derek Thompson. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, so, uh, and of course, you know Molly Wood, I assume. Absolutely. Uh, I know Molly. Nice to see you. <laughs> you know, our dame from the Hall of Fame here. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Derek, you can congratulate Molly on being Taking adapted to into the, the podcasting Hall of Fame. Oh, congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. Uh, Derek, you wrote a story. Uh, it was kind of reflective. You, you, you hit on four points about why this generation, uh, this younger generation, suffering from uh, depression, anxiety, etc. Uh, and uh, I, I, but to, before we get into the story, wh- why did you write the story? What was the uh, origin story of the story? The origin story of the story? Um, honestly, it was just seeing an article on Twitter, which is where I live. Um, in addition to this podcasting cave, which is where I also live. 
And uh, the CDC just announced that the share of teenagers of high school students, this is a high school survey that said that they feel persistent sadness or hopelessness had reached an all time high. And this is a trend that I followed for a bit. I follow Jonathan Haidt. I follow a couple other researchers like Gene Twenge that have looked at the impacts of social media on teenage depression and anxiety for quite a long time. And basically, the number was going up, 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 up. And then during the pandemic, teen hopelessness, anxiety, sadness, depression, everything just completely spiked, right? The, the pandemic, as it did to so many other trends, economic trends, business trends, accelerated uh, uh, that which was pre-existing. And I just thought this was fascinating. It was fascinating mm. for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's just incredibly important that teenagers are sad. Like that is that is itself in, 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 in a nutshell an, an important fact. Sadness is important. But I'm also so interested in, in the fact that this is a trend that's going to slam into the so-called real world. Sadness in high school will become sadness in college, will become sadness in the workforce, will become sadness in adulthood. Like this is a trend. You know, I, was, I was just talking to, to someone about, um, uh, about how companies are handling the rise of anxiety among their younger employees. They're talking about how uh, CEOs are now chief empathy officers. Oh. And a lot of these big companies are, are hiring um, uh, chief uh, wellness officers as well, CWOs. Like people are paying incredibly close attention to this, frankly, unignorable phenomenon of, of, of youth anxiety. And I really wanted to figure out what the hell is going on here. Yeah. So you identified four factors. Um, social media use, sociality being down, the mm -hmm. isolation of the pandemic, the world is stressful, and there's more news about the world stressors and and modern parenting strategies. There's like, I want to unpack all of those. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, but which as somebody one, Derek, who like yeah. took my sad teenager to school this morning. Um, can we start with parenting strategies, please? I was <laughs> what go am I there, doing yeah. wrong? <laughs> sure. Well, look, I mean, first off, we, I, I have to, uh, you know, from a responsible journalist standpoint, begin with the fact that I, I do not have a, a teenager, much much less one that is sad. So I am not speaking from a place of, uh, of intelligent experience here. But I did talk to a bunch of psychologists. Uh, my wife is a, a PhD in clinical psychology. So I've learned a lot from her about CBT and the therapy that is being used across the population, but also cognitive behavioral therapy. Thank you. Yes. Cognitive mm -hmm. behavioral therapy. Right. I don't want to uh, depart into acronym land here. Um, and, you know, the, the parenting part is really important. There is a theory, and I would love to talk about the degree to which you find this uh, accurate or, or total BS. There is a theory that modern parenting is too, the buzzword is, accommodating. That is to say that a part of growing up is being sad. It's really difficult to grow up. You don't know exactly who you are. You don't know what you want. You don't have a lot of authority. You have to go to school. You have to do your homework. Um, it's, it's hard. And one thing that good parenting theoretically or good upbringing should do is help people build the resiliency that they will inevitably need in order to overcome the inevitable stresses of life. And today, by contrast, a lot of modern parenting, according to, uh, to these experts, um, is accommodating, which is to say that if a kid doesn't like broccoli, they'll get turkey loaf for lunch and dinner every day of their life for four years. That was yep. an actual story from a cover uh, from a from a cover story in the Atlantic a few years ago. If a child mm. is afraid of dogs, rather than do what psychologists would call exposure therapy, introduce this child who's afraid of dogs to a bunch of really really cute puppies, so that over time they'll be less afraid of this general species of dog. 
You instead accommodate the fear of dogs. You say, I am never going over to anyone's house who has a dog. And then mm -hmm. over time, this kind of accommodating strategy bubble wraps kids. And you can sort of think by extension of the bubble wrapping metaphor, they don't grow the skin thickness that is necessary in order to survive a world or live in a world that is full of stressors. And so that is the, that's the critique of not just helicopter parenting, not just being present too much, but accommodative parenting, giving in to pathologies and fears rather than trying to build resiliency. Listen, if you know anything about this week in startups, you know we love our Dell products here. We're a Dell shop. And right now, Dell has a semi-annual sale going on where Twist listeners can save up to 45% on select items. May I suggest the 39-inch ultra-sharp curved monitor that Jason sent me when I started this job? This thing is bananas. It's like watching a tennis match, looking from side to side on this device. Now, Dell actually wants to help startups scale their tech stack because the company is rooted in startup culture. I know it doesn't seem that way, but we had the founder, Michael Dell, on the show back on episode 1293, and he told the origin story of Dell, which could not be more classic startup. He started Dell in a dorm room. Now, going back to the roots, Dell has launched Dell for Startups. It's a program dedicated to equipping startups with the best tech in the world, the monitors, the laptops, yes, but also cloud services and IT infrastructure. Dell helps startups by giving them access to a team of IT advisors, helping them access capital for building out tech stacks and getting exclusive rewards. So visit dell.com slash twist to get those savings today and apply for Dell for startups. I am telling you, if you're sitting here with this big curved monitor, you're going to impress a potential VC. Again, go to dell.com slash twist for up to 45% off. So yeah, I mean, you must see this, Molly, with right? A toughen up strategy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 Molly and I are both parents. I have a twelve-year-old, and your son's fifteen or sixteen now. Fifteen, still fifteen. Right so, in the middle of it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're both in the middle of it. I also have six-year-olds, and y there is this thing where it's like, I don't like that food, and you know, at a certain point, as a parent, you have to say, "This is what we're having for dinner." Uh, you don't get to choose the restaurant. There's five people who live in this household, and tonight we're eating Chinese food, and. If you love Japanese, that's fine, you know, and there might be a, you know, a day of the week you get to pick, but the other days you eat this and I just tell my kids like, listen, if you don't eat what's on the plate, that's fine. You have three choices. You can have a yogurt, you can have a banana, uh, or I can toast a bagel, whatever, you know, like I kind of give them like three choices. And if you, if you opt out of this, there's like three simple choices here, but that's, mm -hmm. and you don't get dessert, obviously. <laughs> and but then I mean, it, it, I think it's a reaction, Molly, you tell me we had a generation of parents who maybe were too hard on their kids. We had capital punishment. I think we're the last, I don't know if you experienced capital punishment and you must've like, not, I'm not talking about your parents, but people in your contemporaries, there was ca still capital punishment. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I remember teachers hitting kids in school. Mm -hmm. So we had this like, well, that's not cool. And now we have this like way overreaction to like, oh, you don't like dogs? Well, then we'll just have a dog free world for you, which is <laughs> mm -hmm. nonsensical. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Molly, I mean, what, I, what do you think I about- I think certainly we see how those- how you handle it, yeah. Certainly, like, we all know those parents, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody knows those parents who are like, I got to keep my kid away from your dog the whole time we're at this party and ruin the whole party. And it's just going to be like, I'm not saying I was at a party like that recently, but it was. Um, and there is, I think, a lot more and you note this in your piece that there's a lot more anxiety, you have more awareness of anxiety, and then you have parents talking about this with their kids. And I certainly have some, you know, people in my social circle who I'm like, 
are you convincing your child that they have anxiety oh, and OCD and all of these, you know? On the they're other hand, they're inducing it, Molly. It's like they're well, basically like you'll get more attention. We'll dote over the, you more if you're acting moody or whatever, right? right? You're kind of enabling. What do you think of that, Derek? Uh, but well, isn't I, there like, but wait, hold on. I'm in the middle of yeah, that thought. However, yeah. at the same time, for years and years and years, we said our kids are toughening up. They're resilient. I read this great tweet the other day where it was like, you know, this woman is talking to her therapist and the therapist says kids are really resilient. And she goes, really? Well, then why do so many adults need therapy? Mm-hmm. So like, we don't know for sure what the long-term impact of the economy. There are some people who over accommodate, but do we really think that that is causing these issues or are we more aware? I would say two things. Mm. First off, I think that what's happening is ironic because it is the parents' attempt to prevent their children from feeling anxious in the short term that is hurting their ability to deal with stressors in the long term. That is the irony of the bubble wrapping strategy, right? By accommodating now, you hurt their ability to accommodate for themselves, to protect themselves in the future. They don't grow the resilience the skin thickness that they need because you're taking care of absolutely everything for them and designing a world in which they never have to feel deeply the anxiety, the distress that they feel, right? Like we don't need to go all the way back to like Marcus Aurelius stoicism, but like a part of stoicism to which I subscribe like, you know, to a, a bit of, I think there's there's wisdom there. A part of this logic and to a certain extent it's the logic of Buddhism as well is that life is suffering, life is pain. And you have to just stare that fact nakedly in the face. Life has suffering and it is pain and it is our responsibility to determine our emotional reaction to the inevitable pain and suffering that is life. And if you're going to raise your children in a way that, that, that sort of protects them from having to feel those negative stressors, then they won't be prepared in the kind of, you know, stoic or Buddhist way that Marcus Aurelius or Buddha would have told you to. That's, 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 I guess, point number one. Point number mm-hmm. two, and I didn't want to sort of lean on this too hard because to a certain extent, this is a, this is a bit of a classed argument. Not every, I'm trying to, I'm describing what is a global phenomenon among American teens, not just yeah. among upper middle class teens. But the following is, I think, more of a classed argument. Valerie Ramey is a, as an economist who wrote this very famous paper on the rug rat race. And this was a paper looking at time use surveys of upper middle class parents. And it showed that upper middle class parents, especially college graduate parents, started in the 1980s to spend much more time with their kids when they were teenagers. The time spent with kids started to go up and up and up and up the 1980s, 90s, 2000s. Valerie Ramey's thesis is that this is about parents becoming much more obsessed with getting their kids into college and that the college achievement rat race might be another layer of this stress cake that we're trying to disentangle, right? That in addition to being sort of um, cosseted and bubble wrap from everyday stressors, like I don't like dogs, I don't like broccoli, I don't like Brussels sprouts, you also have this enormous pressure on your back to get into Williams. And if you don't get into the school that has an acceptance rate of like 5.1%, then you're a failure. And that combination of I never have to feel this kind of I'm, I'm, I'm protected from these anxieties, in my everyday life, but also I'm given this unbelievably difficult achievement expectation for my parents and for my world. I think the combination of that is unbelievably mm. stressful to a lot of upper middle class kids. And it should be said that while income is not asked about in the CDC survey, um, ethnicity is enforced in this country, a relatively close proximity for income. And the fastest growing anxiety rates, the fastest growing um, uh, sadness rates in the country were among white kids, more than Hispanics, more than um, black kids, more than any other demographic. Uh, sadness and hopelessness is rising fastest for white kids. Is, is that a way of saying that 
the privileged kids can afford to be sad and you know the maybe the kids who have less privilege are experiencing a little more hardship perhaps I mean, a lot more hardship and getting more yeah. resilient like is this actually just testing bias like do we just know that these kids are anxious because we're able to ask them that's a really really great question and it is absolutely a question that my wife asked so there's a um uh i would say two things one i think it is well understood within the clinical psychology world that there is a testing bias a representative bias that uh, that higher income people are more likely to use language like i suffer from generalized anxiety disorder versus just feeling like well my life is objectively difficult. I make minimum wage salaries and it's difficult to pay rent, but I, I, but I, I, don't, I don't tell pollsters that I have generalized anxiety disorder. So to a certain extent, there's a representation angle here. But how do we know that this isn't just representation? Well, look at the objective data. Suicides are going up. Hospital mm-hmm. um, uh, ER uh, uh, admits for teens who self-harm is going up. Um, uh, suicide attempts are go- are going up. Eating disorders are going up, and places that treat eating disorders are seeing more cases. So it's not just a polling answer. That we we also have objective data that seems to indicate that this is a real world phenomenon and not just a representative phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's this is where we should make the turn into some of these other stressors too, because the parenting is one of the four. Um, so you've got a certain segment that has like this bubble parenting, and they can't kind of figure out how to like function in the world then you have all of these other factors i know uh that jason is super passionate about the conversation around social media that's listed as your number one do you think that's like the actual number one how big a factor is that for kids to be totally honest with you i i listed them by how frequently i heard them offered as answers Mm. um uh I'm pretty ambivalent myself on on what the big story is. I do think that it's a jambalaya. The very last paragraph of my article, I think the article might have been shared in the in the stream, but the very last paragraph of my article is my attempt to synthesize all the answers. I, I, I think there's there's no question you have to look at social media. All of these subjective and objective measures of negative teen mental health started to increase in 2011, 2012. What was happening then? This is Gene Twenge's big argument. What was happening in 2011, 2012? Was it the Great Recession just started? Nope, it was over and actually unemployment was starting to decline. Was it some big other cultural trend? No, it really was smartphone penetration passing 50% and the mainstreaming of social media plus smartphones. And I think that if you look at the culture that is created by the internet, it's a culture that there's, there's some studies that have shown that the kind of emotions that go viral on the internet are high arousal negative emotions. So not just mere sadness, but yep. outrage, anger, fear, absolute, they're deplorable and they're horrible and everyone give me a thousand likes for saying so. If you go to therapy and get CBT, have, a, have someone give you cognitive behavioral therapy, they will push back against every high arousal negative emotion that comes to you. So we have in, on the internet a world that is essentially the hellscape for clinical psychologists. Like if clinical psychologists were going to design a world that was like perfectly imperfect for mental health, they would design social media and the internet. It's yep. just a terrible place to be for yeah. mental health. And you see this over and over and over again. And so I, I think it's impossible to, to, to fully disentangle the effect of social media. Then finally, and I'll, I'll stop talking and throw this back to you guys in a second, but, um, you know, you could just believe Instagram. You know, Instagram has done its own internal surveys, which has basically said, my summary, 
Uh, our product is like alcohol. Lots of people love it and it's good for them and it's pro-social for them and they have a fine time with it. But there is a minority that finds that this stimulus makes them dependent and depressed. That's social media. Yeah, it, yeah. It, I love Twitter, but like it absolutely makes some people dependent and depressed. And I think we need to be sort of sophisticated in our analysis of social media to say, this is not rat poison, it's alcohol. Fine for many, terrible for some. Well, mm-hmm. and if you combine it with the, soci- the, the socializing factor that you mentioned, and you can actually dovetail it with parenting, a lot of parents, you know, will say like, okay, you can use your device, this becomes like um, a substitute for parenting, or, you know, them going out and experiencing hardship in the world, they just put their device in front of their face, and they just consume whatever's on YouTube or Instagram. And so it's not just that they're going into social media, and that's the hellscape, I think it's a pretty good description of it. Um, they're removing socialization. So it's what it's taking away at the same time. So it's like double, it's just, it, it couldn't be a more horrible combination. And I, I guess this leads to, if you were the person making the decision, and let's say the government had the ability to regulate uses of social media and smartphones, what would be the minimum age that you would set reasonably for social media for kids and teens? Yeah, as someone as someone without kids and who really doesn't research kids, I definitely, am, I don't have a confident answer. Um, I think you'd probably want to start by making it harder for tweens to use a product they're, that they're not supposed to use, right? Like, I, my understanding is that it's widely understood that kids who theoretically shouldn't be able to get onto Instagram are utterly on Instagram and all their of friends course. are on Instagram. And it's like, you know, it's, it, I don't know, it's, it's like drinking in some rural county where absolutely everybody is drinking by the time they're 17 or something, um, or urban county. I don't want to be rural pissed yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so I think you no, hillbillies str- have a totally different way of looking at it. I can, I can take that bullet for you, Derek. You're 100. I was like, oh yeah, no, that's <laughs> my These hillbillies are it, just yes. cracking mm-hmm. cases of Bud Light. They love yeah, it. Yeah, right. So, accurate. Accurate. <laughs> so I do think. I do think. <laughs> so I do think that I do think that a minimum age is probably appropriate. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote an article called uh, "Social Media Is Attention Alcohol." And I made two points in that article. Uh, point number one is that we have a minimum age for uh, har- a relatively strongly kept minimum age for alcohol, and we should have one for for social media as well. A, a legal limit, not just uh, let Snapchat and Instagram decide for themselves yeah. what the what the bottom line is. Um, the other, and this is a little bit more uh, touchy feely, so maybe you can like sort of help me unpack this. But um, we have like a language and like a sort of social infrastructure around alcohol dependency. We say. Hey man, um, you need like maybe you should give me your keys tonight. I think you've had too much. Hey, mm. you should you should have a water. You know, I yeah. think we we've had enough today. Cup of um, coffee time. Yeah, we have uh, interventions for people, and it's not it's not it's it's not weird to have an intervention for a friend. It's it's a it's a part of culture, but we don't have these things for social media. Really, we don't yeah. really have like a norm of like friends texting each other saying you need to get off Twitter. We don't really well, have like, I mean, do, I mean, I mean well, maybe we, we do. might, you know what I would argue, I I don't. <laughs> but what we don't, well, yeah, you have, what maybe we don't you have, are, I would you say. You are a leader in the space. You're the, yes. you're the bleeding edge I've of this social like, infrastructure sure we have to build. <laughs> I, but I think what we don't have actually is widespread agreement that online activity causes offline harm. Like we yes. don't, you know, we have not come to, because there are too many people making too much money and getting too much attention 
on mm. social media for us to say at a blanket level, this is bad for people. Like, we still don't necessarily agree on that. And so the idea that we would somehow translate that that seemingly obvious harm into parenting or policies yeah. for our kids, it feels like we're still pretty far away from that. Yeah, we are. And and just and just to finish the social infrastructure like list, because it's a lot of things. Like yeah. I love whiskey. I collect wine. Like I love alcohol. But I also like not through any like incredible intelligence, just know that I shouldn't like have X amount of whiskey like on a Tuesday, right? Like if I want to try some whiskey and like, you know, drink it while watching basketball, I don't feel that bad. But like if I'm dipping back and back into the whiskey on a Tuesday afternoon when I'm alone, I'm like, no, I should I shouldn't be doing this. This is this is clearly me enjoying the whiskey a little bit too much. It's a little but challenging we, when you're a Knicks fan, but continue. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. easy for you to say. Banning Knicks fandom might actually be a really good that pro social policy from the solution for depression. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the depression charts are receding. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I but, we, but like there's so there's that understanding. We don't have like a similar understanding. I think about social media use. No. Like there's no surgeon general warning. That's just like. Derek, you know, Jason, Molly, if you guys have like posted three times today, by the time, but by your fourth post of the day, like you should really start to reconsider your posting behavior. Like there's just, mm -hmm. there's just, no, again, I call it social infrastructure and that's a little broad, but it's just because like we just don't have a, Molly, you were just, you were right on this. We don't have a communal sense of like what behavior is good, what behavior is bad, what's pro-social and what's maladaptive. Well, and we know that tobacco and alcohol will kill you on a physical level. And yet we don't necessarily think of the brain as a part of the body, right? Mm. So it's, it is doing the same kind of damage. We just haven't quantified it in the way of like lung cancer or liver, you know, cirrhosis. Right. Um, but now let's talk about the news. This, I think, is what Jason meant by the self-reflective part of this. Yeah, because that was the part also, I thought when I read your tweet storm, I retweeted yeah. one part of it. And I was like, you do. <laughs> like the news is obsessed, right? Like with bad news. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Uh, and there's, and there's a couple layers to this. First layer. Um, the news has a bad news bias. Uh, we, we know this. I mean, you know, like here we are talking about teen sadness. Um, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like news has a bad news bias. Yeah. If it bleeds, it leads. Like this is an old, old adage. We don't need to, uh, to go too deeply into that. One layer down is that, like I said, news now travels through social media distribution streams and social media has a high arousal negative emotion bias, right? Outrage, anger, uh, fear. So you have a product with a bad news bias traveling through distribution streams with a high arousal negative emotion bias. Then I think you have like the readers. You have people who read and share. And I, I unfortunately think that people go online for the purpose of like dipping into maladaptive feelings. They want to go online to feel that like frisson of anger and outrage. They're like, mm. who's the enemy? Who's the, the, the antagonist of Twitter today? And how can I jump on a quote tweet and make fun of them? Like, we, I think if we're, if we're reflective, like we often are our worst selves when we're online participating in the discourse, capital T, capital D, the discourse. Mm -hmm. We're often our worst versions of ourselves. And if you put it all together, I just think that people, especially teens, are like more aware of the news than they used to be. Uh, my wife and, and her friends uh, who are who are clinical psychologists say this, like kids will come in to the therapist's office and they'll say like, I'm depressed about climate change. I'm depressed about the American homicide rate. I'm depressed about enter some huge global unsolvable problem here. And I think that's new. I think it's kind of new. Like, 
Yeah. Uh, being being obsessed with with the news is is you know we used to call them news hounds, but now we don't even like you know or like or like media junkies. We don't even use those terms yet anymore because it's kind of assumed that everyone's a media junkie. Everyone's swimming in the news currents all the time, and I'm just not sure it's good for us. It's possible that news is like social media is like alcohol. A little bit can be good. A lot is pretty consistently pernicious. And so I think that the that there's something about the the quality of the news cycle that might be a contributor here. They know, I mean, kids know everything. I can speak from experience here. My kid knows everything. And there are times when that, you know, it's like I see him and the first thing in the, immediately in the morning is him like talking about some terrible. I mean, I have had to be like, dude, I can't take this like buzzkill first thing yeah. in the morning. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And on top of that, they have uh, immature frontal lobes. Like they can't, and they, and they're not very old. They have no sense of context, no sense yep. of sort of historical perspective. The idea that, that this might have happened before, let alone the ability to sort of sniff out the misinformation. Yeah. And this is, this is not, you're right. Like teen brains are different. This is a point that Lauren Steinberg, who I interviewed both for a, a book that I wrote called uh, Hitmakers, which is there, um, yep. and for um, this article. Uh, Lauren Sandberg makes this really important point, which is that teen brains, unlike children's brains and unlike adult brains, are extraordinarily sensitive to peer influence. And he's done a lot of studies on this, but basically teens care more about what their peers think about them than any other age group. So why is that important with social media? Well, it means that teens are choosing to dip into this world where people are constantly up and down voting every aspect of people's lives, it seems like a perfect environment for them to develop all sorts of negative social comparison yeah. disorders. And that's yeah. just another reason why social media might be sort of particularly pernicious for teenagers. In, in the good news column, um, it feels like the country uh, is becoming aware of this. We have politicians becoming aware that social media is driving politics not always in a good way. We have podcasting, uh, which we're soaking in right now, and you have a Ringer podcast as well, mm -hmm. uh, our podcast on the Ringer Network. Y you look at, uh, I think, a reaction to this, people taking social media diets, people opting out of social media. And I really think podcasting has become like the antidote for it. It's like, you know what, binge drinking, not fun. But, you know, hey, doing this uh, podcasting thing and people getting addicted to long form authentic discussion seems to be a correction to it. And I, I also think the Instagram leak w could have been like the tipping point of, you know, society being like, yeah, this stuff is not good. Hmm. Uh, and you have certain countries banning it. And you have China, you know, it's, it's an authoritarian country, they can do things like this, we can't because we have this concept that people have choice and free will. But they're just like, yeah, you're not playing video games during the week and you get two mm -hmm. hours of video games. And um, as heavy handed and as insane as like how they run their country can be at times, um, they might be right. They yeah, might be I, right about the time limits. I, they, yeah, they, they are, you know, there's, there's a dollop of truth even to uh, Chinese authoritarianism. I think, I mean, it yeah. comes from, it doesn't, it is, it's directionally accurate. It's yes. just like the vector is way too strong, right? Yeah. They recognize the time limits would be good, but rather than like suggest it, uh, they, they, they mandate it, which probably yeah. is itself uh, uh, not, not very good. But I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, it, there are lots of answers to the questions that we are posing that really are a matter of like ancient wisdom. Like, I mean, to go back to just Buddhism and Stoicism, um, 
but even like even like existentialism and all sorts of like judeo-christian philosophies like you know what's the serenity prayer right like understand the difference between what you control what you can control and what you can't like these are ancient ideas and i feel like like being more aware of our own limits and of the limits uh of of certain tools in our life would just be good for people so maybe to a certain extent this is this is just about like a a return at a national level, parental level, and individual level to some of that ancient wisdom. I think it's such a great point. I I have really thought about this deeply because, you know, raising kids and you'll be there soon, I'm sure, Derek. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I came up with some simple rules uh, and I, I actually talked to my kids about parenting, like six-year-olds and 12-year-olds, I have six-year-old twins. And I told them, I was like, you know, as your parent, I need you to be bored sometimes because all the great ideas I had in my life came when I was bored. And if you're using a device, it's just giving you entertainment constantly and you never experience boredom therefore you never have a creative idea and so you know when we're skiing or whatever there's no devices during the day and we'll watch a movie at night it's a family discussion as to which movie we make a list of movies we want to watch we talk about the movie we talk about the director we make it a little more of a ceremony to like watch it together and discuss it and then yeah no more ipads in the morning and then if we're at you know the ski house it's there's no devices no screens until after the sun goes down and boy was that a change mm, yeah and then a little bit of grit goes a long way so it, one of the things i love about skiing has you know but one activity is it's hard it's hard to get your ski equipment on it's hard to get on the lift it's like it's arduous it's a schlep. yeah it's a schlep mm-hmm. of schleps of all schleps and but once you get on the mountain it's exhilarating and then you have this like okay there was a reward for the schlep it was worth the schlep and hiking and all that stuff so i think you know we we were free-range kids molly and myself i don't know about you derek uh, i think you're a little bit younger than us we're gen xers you're a millennial i'm a millennial yeah yeah I, yeah I, yeah so you got that i saw the participation trophies behind you that's right um <laughs> congratulations exactly. I know, like, it's really you guys <laughs> passing all this anxiety <laughs> on to the i mean congratulations you say, filed this week i know oh, i get this that's the why Atlantic you get a paycheck derek every <laughs> week every week i get a little trophy from the atlantic i get a little trophy from no <laughs> like i will say i don't know that i would recommend like Free i range. think there's a, there is truth to the ancient wisdom there is there is a lot of truth to the, to the idea that what we need to do is acknowledge that yeah. our kids are sad and their brains are sick and work on that problem. Mm. I do not know that I would recommend my own childhood. Like, did it make me the mayor of the apocalypse? Absolutely. <laughs> right? Like, yes, I did raise myself and everybody around me. And now I'm very tough as a result. Not ideal. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't necessarily mm. give my kid that, right? Like, I, I don't, I think there's, I, I would be wary of bringing all the nostalgia but wait, wait, but Molly, don't you think solution because we live in a different world now? Well, we just no, no. Do. Molly, don't you think sometimes when you see these kids who are entitled and you're like, okay, they have it a lot easier than me. They've got all of this privilege They, you know, pay, parents are going to pay for college. They don't have to have an after school job. Don't sometimes you look at it and then look at the outcome and say, I'm actually a happier person because I suffered more as a free range kid. Like this, this I concept that kids cannot their be alone is going to be. I don't let's be let's be yeah. honest about one thing. We don't know what their outcome is going to be. Well, so you're I was very sad yeah. all by myself. Uh, right. Like being a free range kid. Uh, and now I'm fine. We don't know what the we know that there are higher rates of, you know, everything that you said objectively is 100 percent true. We know that there are higher rates of suicide. We know there's terrible drug use. We know that there is like real concern anxiety, and depression. Yeah. We also don't know for sure that those mm. kids are all going to be sad in college and be sad in the workforce. And right. Like. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not sad now. Yeah, I think, you know, we're asking, we're, we're touching on what are essentially some of the most important, but also deepest and, you know, hardest to answer questions of like the human condition and like, like right. not to, you know, end us in like the most uh, highfalutin possible mm-hmm. way. But, um, you know, I think the goal can't be happiness. The goal can't be like permanent happiness because that like yeah. that doesn't really exist, right? No. We, we don't want to make the North Star something that we're never going to achieve. The goal is how do we keep persistent sadness mm. from growing 85% for a gener- over a 10-year period for a generation, right? Like that, that is the goal. How do we stop the inexorable rise of persistent sadness? And there, I think, you know, you just have to take all the ingredients and like put it in the jambalaya. Like overuse of social media has to be important. One thing mm-hmm. we didn't talk about, but I'll just quickly mention, go right through the decline of sociality and the increase of loneliness is a huge deal. Like it just seems like kids are physically, phenomenologically alone a lot, alone yep. with a screen a lot. Yeah. Like they don't go on walks with their parents. They don't work. They don't drive. They go on dates less. They hang out with their friends in physical world environments less. They are alone with an Apple screen for, or Google, uh, for a lot of Samsung. A lot of their life. Just want to make sure I got all the manufacturers. Yeah. Well done. Eighty-seven percent market Shit. share. Done. <laughs> there we go. Um, you, so, and, and then on top of that, you want you want to, I think, think about the the downsides of accommodative parenting, and you want to think about the fact that people in my industry are filling the interwebs with a lot of negative, scary, sad, <laughs> including, frankly, this article. So, mea culpa. But like, I think that you, if you put it all together, you have the beginning of the understanding of okay, this is why persistent hopelessness and sadness is increasing. And maybe if we just pull down on each of these ingredients, that line will just bend a little normalize, bit. Normalize. Yeah, I, it totally. feels like you can normalize it just by dialing back each of these 20%. I guarantee yeah. you're going to see a compounding effect. It's very hard to say no screens. It's very hard to say, you know, uh, you got to suffer more, or, you know, you got to socialize 100% of the time. But if you do a little bit of each, I bet you, you know, it will turn around. And then a lot of this is like this crazy narcissism where everything is about the person and nothing is about, you know, helping the rest of the world or going out and working like, I I think people not working or not. Sometimes I literally am like, we need church. Well, I mean, church was like about helping other people. Or synagogue. synagogue. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what we and I guess what I mean by that is community and a sense of duty. Like mm-hmm. it's something other than yourself. Like, the, I mean, it, something it really gets yourself. super narcissistic when you're like, I'm posting to TikTok and Instagram, my feelings, my score on the video game. Like everything is about the person. Nothing's about, Hey, I'm on the chess club. I'm in the theater club. I'm going out with my crew. We're doing things together. I'm on the ski team, whatever. Like it, it mm-hmm. can't always be about this individual, which I think is the parents create. Uh, which we saw here, I, I won't say the specific town, but w- this example you gave of the pressure to get into these colleges is so pernicious in the Bay Area that we had hmm. so many suicides going on yep. in a particular area that we yep. had to do a media blackout because they felt we were now getting into induced suicide a territory. Contagion effect, yeah. A contagion was happening and two or three people would be jumping in front of the train they had to put a security guard in front of the train. Um, be, and it was all based on these insane parents who were like, if you don't go to Harvard, Stanford, whatever, bull- like, uh, you know, how do you succeed? And then you look around you and everybody's a CEO or a venture capitalist who went to Harvard mm-hmm. or Stanford because mm-hmm. 
like Hollywood, all the beautiful people go to Hollywood, all the Stanford, Harvard grads come here. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all the kids can't statistically be the same as the most successful people they see in their orbit, just like every kid in Hollywood cannot become Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, I, sometimes I wonder whether, um, uh, whether people in positions, it's so typical for people in positions of power or success to give graduate school speeches about sort of the, the path to their success, like, yeah. here's the ladder to walk up to get to where I am. Right. You know, it might sometimes just be useful to have them give um, graduate speeches about uh, what's still hard in their life to mm. make the point that like, there is no, this isn't a hundred meter dash. There's, there's no marathon. There's no finish line. Like right. people who you think have succeeded, have passed like the final threshold of success. They still feel stress. They still feel sadness. They still feel occasional hopelessness. They still feel everything that's like endemic to the human condition. So like you're thinking about like, oh, if I get into Stanford, I'll be happy. And then you get into Stanford and you're like, holy, this is really stressful. But if I get into like Stanford MBA school, then I'll be happy. Yeah. And you get into the graduate school of business mm -hmm. and you're still like, oh, well, but if I, I get my to series A, I'll be happy. If I get my series A, I'll be happy. Exactly. And it never, and, and it never, like that, yeah, that's the way, threshold. quite the opposite. You, yes. You literally have to, you know, as, as best I can see having, you know, being a kid from Brooklyn who now is you know, seeing it up close and personal. It's it really is about that foundation of childhood and then defining success for yourself and actually understanding yourself enough to know what makes you happy. Yes. And then constructing a life around, hey, you know what makes me happy? I like doing my podcast. I like going skiing with my kids. Okay, I'm going to do more of that. I like going to this. I like this music. I, I like the sports team. I'm going to indulge in that. I like playing basketball. I'm going to do that. Like, you actually have to take some amount of agency in your life. And I think the problem with social media is you, you're giving up all agency. You're just like, whatever's on the screen is what I'm doing. You're not constructing a life. You're just being programmed by an algorithm. All these devices right in the fucking garbage. That's my advice for parents. <laughs> Honestly. I I like Throw Twitter and, and garbage and, and it goes yet, for you too, journalists enough with yet, the Twitter. What did you think of it? And yet Twitter is how you found me. Like I well, do think there again, are I, some good things that happen. Yeah. yeah but, I mean, what did what you, you think, what did of, you think mm -hmm, of the New York, the New York Times. Times? Tweet less, Derek. Tweet less, um, maybe. There's with no, more wood behind the arrows. There's no question that I, I think he's directionally right. I think I think he's directionally right that a lot of journalists use Twitter in a pernicious way. And that specifically, I don't just mean that like being online is pernicious. I mean that that it essentially serves as a kind of shelling point or like contagion device for journalists to arrive at the same opinion. Like I just mm. see this so many oh. times that like for all sorts yeah. of reasons. Because you constantly have to externalize, you constantly have to publish what you think about everything that, well, once everything is externalized and published, it's easier for everyone to understand where like their peers are. And so they come around the same ideas. But like Ooh. the way that you understand the way that the world works totally. is by experimenting, having a diversity of views. And it's really difficult, I think, to have like a, a group that understands itself to be a single peer group publishing a diversity of views without arriving at sort of a single point. And so I think that social media is like probably pretty bad for that because it, it, it hurts our ability to understand reality. At the yep. same time, like I love Twitter. Like Twitter is how I, I Twitter is how I learn about the about everything. I, I try to do a very purposeful job of following people who I agree with and disagree with, who are conservative and libertarian and liberal and leftist. I try to expose myself to all these viewpoints, and then I also try to not react when I'm angered because mm -hmm. inevitably, if you have a lot of different viewpoints in your stream, you're going to see something that's outrageous you're like oh that's so stupid how can a yes. human think that but you're like wait that is by design i did that i purposely exposed myself to like whatever a paleoconservative uh marxist because i wanted to understand what a marxist would think about problem xyz 
So if I'm reacting with anger, I'm reacting to my own mistake. Like this is what the service is for. And too often, I just see that people are like, just going online to have a food fight. The, the metaphor that I, that I use sometimes for Twitter is that Twitter is a library with a, um, with a food fight in the lobby. Like yeah. you walk into the library in order to like learn about the world, but then you just like see a bunch of people throwing tomatoes and you're like, that looks fun. And you just end up throwing tomatoes sure. at someone. But if you just pass the lobby, you can get in the elevator, go up the, uh, go, go up the floors, and there's a beautiful library of information and views beyond it. But getting out of that lobby is really hard. Yeah, Cur- the, the curation you're doing is critically important. I, I listen to a range of podcasts with people I vehemently disagree with, because I like to be more informed and understand their position. Something happened where you had to pick a side. And I think that's like one of these very weird uh, things that has happened because like a second order effect of social media is like, if you're not picking a side, well, you don't get the rewards of retweets and likes and followers. So it's just so much easier. You know, and, and it happens to media outlets too. It's just easier to be the New York Times and be like, the, we're the anti Trump and then Fox, we're the pro Trump and okay, you know, Rachel Maddow, Ben Shapiro, you're going to get more ratings than if you're the Atlantic and you're like, let's be thoughtful and think this through or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal. Hey, let's let's try to find reality here. It just doesn't result in as many subscribers, which is sort of a weird thing. I think you're probably right. I think there's probably a a, a business, a business incentive to pick a side and monetize anger and outrage, all those emotions that go aerodynamic online. Um, And it's hard, but important. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, it, don't you think Trump Molly really exacerbated it? it? Felt like the New York Times was just like, "Hey, this is going to work. Let's go deep into this Trump thing," and then MSNBC, and then Fox, and other folks went the other way and just tripled down. Yes on or no, right? Like I yeah. think every, that uh, things got more polarized without yeah. a doubt, and so and and that sold. Like there's mm. a whole conversation we can have about incentives mm. and media incentives and the question of of what brings you money and gets you attention and makes you a brand and all of that is still wrapped up in social media and what happens on Twitter where you know, I was actually I got distracted because I was looking up this old interview that we did with George Lakoff, the neurolinguist. Yeah. Um, and one of the things he talks about is that actually this I'm derailing us a little bit, but that um, when you go and seek out uh, op- opinions that oppose yours, Mm. often it has the opposite effect of what you think. You think that it's exposing you to those opinions and making you think about them, but because the brain is physical and what you think and believe is a groove in your brain, then you have a response to the thing that you don't agree with that actually causes you to entrench your own beliefs more strongly. Huh. Right. Yeah, it was you super have interesting. To go, you have to go into it wanting to challenge your beliefs. If you just want to defend your position, if you go into it with a defensive mindset and then read a, a point of view, it's the opposite of yours, then you're you're just sort of prepared to punch back against it. I think yeah, that there's, I mean, I there's think another what he's way saying to is like what he's saying is that there is a degree to it, like that thoughts change your brain. He's talking about the physiology of it. Mm-hmm. And so if the thing that you like there's the mindset part, I would love to go in and say my brain doesn't have any grooves and I don't have any lifelong opinions, but that's just not true. Like mm-hmm. physiologically information goes in is altered by the makeup of my brain. And then I like may or may not reject it. I'm not saying we should give up on Mm. finding different information. But it was just an interesting side note to the idea that exposing yourself to other ideas. Yeah, always makes you more considerate of them. Because in some ways, sometimes, especially now when what we see is people radicalizing in opposition to each other. I think you can make the argument that the more seeking out a radical opinion doesn't necessarily make you more open minded. Yeah. 
I think that there's definitely something to the fact that like, th- there's been a couple studies that seem to indicate that as people gather more knowledge, they become more polarized. So yeah. rather than more information, moving them toward like some imaginary middle of the spectrum, gathering exactly. more information essentially gives them the sort of arsenal to feel like they can stake out one of the poles on that position. Yep. Yeah. Side note, though, that was a total side note to the That's parenting thing. Sort yeah. of. Except that understanding, I think like it goes back to this idea that understanding what kids are feeling now, understanding how the brain works, how we respond to social media, thinking of it as a physical condition, a part of our health is what fundamentally is going to give us solutions. Yeah, I agree. It's fascinating. Uh, Such a good piece. So good. Great, great job on the piece. I I give you a, and I think there is a special um, carve out. If you're writing about depressing things with the intent, intent matters of creating deeper understanding to help people solve the problem. You're not, it's not, it bleeds, it leads. You weren't clickbaiting. You were trying to help the situation. So. I appreciate that. And I'm going to inscribe it on the participation trophy just behind my yes, shoulder over absolutely. here. Absolutely. Thank fact, you very we're much. We're sending you an official This Week in Starters participation trophy. You can follow Derek Thompson on the Twitter, DKTHOMP. And um, he's a staff writer at The Atlantic, host of Plain English. I didn't know you had a podcast program. I'm so sorry. What is Plain English? What do you talk about? Plain How English is in. Uh, it's a podcast about four months old. It's with uh, Bill oh, Simmons okay, Ringer Podcast Network. And uh, it is a news podcast where I believe next week we're going to talk about this article. So uh, for those oh, of whom want, th- for those of you who are listening who think, you know, 50 minutes isn't isn't quite enough for me to talk to <laughs> listen to Derek talking about teenage anxiety, I, I would like another 45. There will be product for you. No, it's, it is literally I yeah, exactly the more the better. Well, here's the thing, you know, you have so much time when you're walking or on the treadmill previously right. commuting whatever i think like there's people are like oh my god 40 minutes it's like 40 minutes is a great discussion over appetizers yes like, there is people have five hours a day they watch video tv traditionally i think it like four of them three of them are going to go to podcasting because it's just such a better conversation for people uh and it, it is uh you, you get and these more voices that have time and you're multitasking yes you can listen while you're playing a video game Cooking dinner, cooking dinner, whatever it is. And uh, he's a contributor to here and now Mondays on NPR, and author of the book, which I actually have read. I, I, I forgot that that was your book. I really enjoyed your book, Hitmakers, the science and popularity, the science of popularity in an age of distraction. Derek, we have to have you on again. Uh, you're a great it. guest. All right. Yeah. We'll yeah, talk right. soon. Bye bye. Thank you both. Thanks. Derek. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Producer Nick here. I want to tell you about the SaaS syndicate. If you're a founder of a SaaS company with a product and market, our investment team wants to talk to you. Head over to thesyndicate.com slash SaaS, S-A-A-S, to apply to raise from the SaaS syndicate. And you can join Jason's syndicate of over 9,000 accredited investors at thesyndicate.com. Producer Justin here. No cool startup? Check out OpenScouting.com, where anyone can refer a startup to our investment team here at launch. Even if you don't know the founder, if you're the first to flag a company for us and we decide to invest, you'll get 5K in cash or 10% of our carry. Hey, everybody. Producer Rachel here. Are you an early stage startup that has product and market, some traction, and are looking to raise at least $500,000? Apply today to Remote Demo Day for your chance to pitch to over 9,000 investors in Jason's syndicate. Submit your application at Remote Demo Day. Our next event is on April 27th. 
And if you want to learn how to invest in startups from the world's greatest angel investor, and no, we're not talking about Chris Saka, then head to angel.university to apply. The four-hour workshop costs $300 and all proceeds are donated to charity. To date, we've donated over $175,000 to various charities, and you can see the full list at angel.university slash charity. 